Uh, why isn't this on? Oh, now both two of them are on. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I should say, by the way, we didn't underestimate Vladimir Putin. We overestimated Joe Biden. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast. I'm not James Lilacs. This week, we've got Elbridge Colby on why we can't take our oil off China, and Rich Goldberg explains blockchain. As Lilacs would say, let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! <laughs> Hello and welcome to Ricochet Podcast number 583. 583. Uh, I am Rob Long, one of the co-founders of Ricochet.com. Along with me is Peter Robinson in Palo Alto, another co-founder of Ricochet. Peter, how are you? I'm fine, actually. You uh, say that and you're surprised. I am a little surprised. I'm, like, wow, I'm fine. I, I didn't even know. Uh, no, I mean, the world is crumbling. I'm behind in my work. It's a rainy day in Palo Alto since moving to California. You've done the opposite. You've moved to New yeah. York. Freezing. I have become extremely sensitive to weather. If there's a cloud in the sky, I'm yeah. depressed all day. Uh, That's because, also an of course, thing I have to tell you. I'm sad. No, to no, don't be, say yeah. such a thing. It is true. The, the children are frolicking in the rain and the snow and the cold. They don't care. You get old, yeah. and it starts to seep in your bones. Uh, we are usually joined by James Lilacs. He's off today. I actually don't know where James is. Do we know where James is? I know he's uh, not here, but I'm not quite sure where. I think there's a. He's taking his daughter on a trip, oh, maybe cool. I, something right. like that. That's excellent. He's being a good uh, father. I'm sure of that. He's, he's somewhere being a, being a dad. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and he, of course, he's missing this exciting podcast on this exciting week. Um, you know, I, 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 I do not. Um, I, I do not. Uh, I don't know how to say this. I, I don't like the maudlin, Peter. As you know. As my professionally, uh, my professional constitution is against anything modern. I have to say, uh, in our uh, church, my church here in New York, on Ash Wednesday, the imposition of ashes for the six o'clock. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happens at the eight a.m. or the nine a.m. But I do know what happens at the six p.m. Um, and the, the imposition of the ashes is, is done by the young, uh, the youth, not the youth. I mean, they're young. They're like uh, you know, elementary school, middle school age children. And you go up to the kids and they say, you know, basically, dust, you know, your dust, you'll return, which is creepy and weird and all sorts of like, uh, hey, hey, kid, you know, having some young face look at you and say, good time for you to go, old person, kind of. Right. But there is right. something on a week like this where that happens and you suddenly realize, oh, so this is all there. I mean, this is so model. I can't believe I can say this, but I did think of this. They're going to inherit all this. I'm not sure I know how I, for the f first time in a while, I'm not sure I know how I feel about that. That We should say that this is Friday morning. So we had a podcast last Friday in which we, um, the, the world seems slightly different, although it's continued on its trajectory. Um, they're now predicting, I guess, that the Russians will have total victory over Ukraine sometime in May. 
Yeah, I'm right. I'm, I'm, we'll see. We have a guest coming on who knows yeah. more about this than I do, certainly. I'm, I am still at the stage where I keep thinking two thoughts. One was, you never know. Now, yeah. that sounds trite and no, foolish. I, you, of course, you, you, you're resisting the model, and I'm resisting the trite this morning. <laughs> but I remember back in the Reagan administration, my boss, the chief speechwriter, Tony Dolan. Tony Dolan used to say that the thing about Ronald Reagan is he understands the open-endedness of reality. Yeah. Tony's theory was that it was because in the old days when Reagan was shooting, they would often get ahead of, this, of the writers and they'd have to improvise. Reagan could see different endings. He could see different ways for each mm -hmm. scene to play itself out. And he certainly could see it he certainly could see a different... So, this was a time in the 80s when even conservatives thought that we were fighting a losing battle. Right. When Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger decided the Soviet Union was a permanent presence, we would just have to learn to live with them. Whitaker Chambers, in his memoir, Witness, said that when he left the Communist Party in the 1930s, it was, he did so with the consciousness that he was leaving the winning side to join the losing side. And it seemed predetermined. And the point about Ronald Reagan, my, my boss and friend Tony used to say was, he just rejects predetermination. You just, reality is really open-ended. All right, so in those days, it was open-ended in a good way. Now, it, it is true that not, 10 days ago, the idea yeah. that anybody, including even the Russians, would roll tanks into another country and start wrecking that country with the intention of wrecking it was just unthinkable. And here we are back in, at, at, that, that's the first thought, that just... Yeah. Which is why I tend to resist a prediction that the Soviets will have conquered Ukraine. <laughs> also, because I did a, an interview yesterday with Stephen Kotkin, and Stephen said, victory in Ukraine for the Soviets is not a possibility. You, you cannot... Soviets, which I think is I so... beg your pardon. No, I, but, it's not, so, well, I mean, but it does yes. seem appropriate, doesn't it? Yes, it does yes, seem yes, right. it does. It does. It does. I'm sorry. Victory for the Russians, in any conventional sense, is not possible. They will not be able to occupy right. the largest land, the largest country in Europe, Ukraine has the largest land mass of any country in Europe that has a population of 42 million people. The Nazis couldn't occupy Ukraine. They got to Kiev, they took over, as Stephen reminded us, they took over all the big mansions and all the hotels and set themselves up in great style, and three days later the bombs started to go off, and the assassinations began. And even the Nazis, all right, so Stephen's concern is that what the Russians want to do at this point is just, if we can't have it, you can't have it either, and they right. just want to destroy the country. All right, and the second thought is, oh, this does, now I can understand certain pieces of history that I couldn't get before. What did it feel like when the Nazis invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939? Oh, it must have felt something, if you were English or American, yeah. it must have felt something like this. The unthinkable has happened. Yeah, and also maybe, this is what I've been thinking about. So, so you're, I'm going to resist the model and you're going to resist the trite. I'm now going to resist 
um, the maudlin and the trite together, I guess. All right. Um, I, I think, in th I mean, I don't know, 39, but I, I suspect in 1939, if you were a, of a certain age, the, the German invasions, the beginning of the German invasions didn't seem, they didn't seem shocking. They seemed like a remembrance, like, oh, I remember this. Mm. I remember Europe like this. I remember when this happened. It, of course, all turned horrible, hor more horrible than I think it was, had been in the century before. I have, I, I no longer, I, I sort of feel like if we're shocked by what happened in Ukraine, um, that we we have, it's because we've lulled ourselves to sleep a little bit. I don't mean the fact that you know, America's strength, I mean, just sort of psychologically. Right. In, <clears throat> for 50 years, um, the entire world and the United States were gripped by one thought and one thought only. One foreign policy uh, 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 issue was paramount, which was the who has nukes, who doesn't have nukes. Right. Where are those nukes pointed? Where are they not pointed? What can we do uh, to the to the Soviets that won't provoke? I mean, that's what a Cold War is. We didn't have Cold right. Wars before because we didn't have nukes before. So in 1994, we basically forced Ukraine, forced Ukraine. Ukraine buys its independence by giving up all the nukes. And they give up all their nukes, and they, and they interpret this as meaning that their borders are now being guaranteed by the international order. And we consider this like, well, no, you're just giving up your nukes, and we're saying, okay, you can fly your flag. None of this is going to happen until you give up your nukes, because they had plenty of them, which I'm sure now they regret giving up, which I'm sure now many countries around the world are saying, well, hey, we better get some nukes and not yes. give them up. Because that seems to be the only thing, the only chip in the game that has any leverage. But I think that since, I don't know, since 89, since, eight, since 1990, and I, again, I, I returned constantly to this theme, Peter, that it is entirely your fault. Since the collapse <laughs> of the Soviet Union, we have kind of forgotten about nukes. Yeah. Um, but nukes haven't forgotten about nukes, and the Russians haven't forgotten about nukes, and the world hasn't forgotten, really. They, they, they're, they're, no long, they're not unimportant. It's like a, I keep thinking that this is, this is really about the hangover of an incredibly long nuclear cold war, and we're still paying the price, and we thought it was over psychologically, and it's not. It's like that moment in a slasher movie, you know, it's near the, it's in the last reel, but it's not the last reel. Where they, uh, you know, the teenage couple have finally killed the slasher uh, somehow, and he's dead behind the sofa, and they're on the sofa embracing and in happiness because now he's dead, and they can, you know, they're, they're starting to make out even. And then in the background, yes, the slasher rises. He's not dead with his knife, uh, and then that's the last reel. Well, that's kind of where Glenn, we are. Glenn Close exploding from the bathtub. Exactly. That's kind of right. where we are. And it's the nukes that are rising, and we thought we were done with them. But actually, if Russia has nuclear weapons, we are not going to issue a no-fly zone. We are not going to send troops to Ukraine. We are going to sacrifice Ukraine. Um, and that will be also the calculus if, and we'll talk about this with our guest, if China takes over Taiwan, we will not be doing the things that we think we'll be doing because we have forgotten that there are still nuclear tip missiles everywhere and that is ultimately the only leverage you needed in in 2022 just as if just as as it was the only leverage you needed in 1962 right i'm gonna grant a lot of that well again we'll have a guest in a moment or two who knows more about this than i do but um yes we're not going to we're not going to put american air force 
pilots in the position of having to shoot down MiGs right. <clears throat> as if this were Korea in 1950. That won't happen. On the other hand, Stephen Cockin made this point yesterday. Tyrannies in their final stages become narrower. They become more and more delusional. The information flow gets, begins to get choked off. This is what happened to Stalin. Stalin knew more about what was happening in the Soviet Union when he was a young man than he, was, than he did when he was at the peak of his powers, because it had been a long time since anybody told Joseph Stalin anything he didn't want to hear. Democracies are reality recognition machines. They can learn. Even when Joe Biden is the president, there's a way in which the democracies can learn. And Stephen made the point that the Chinese are watching this, as of course the Chinese are always watching. And they are discovering that the West has rallied in a way that no one... The German yeah. Chancellor Olaf Scholz is a left-of-center <laughs> chancellor. Right. He called the Bundestag into an emergency session and announced that we're at we're spending a hundred billion euros more on German defense this year. We're sending them stingers. We're sending them anti-tank missiles. From now on, we're going to meet our NATO obligation and spend two percent of GDP, which will make Germany give Germany the biggest defense budget of any country in Europe. I mean, this is astonishing. And we're discovering just what you can and cannot do when you close a large economy out of the international system. Well, there's a certain sense in which this is a rehearsal for Taiwan. And if we, um, if we play our role well, the Chinese will think more, it will change their calculations. It'd be much more complicated. We, when we have a Yes, so we'll, we'll keep oh, our guessing. Oh, and the guest actually knows what yeah. he's talking about. <laughs> well, so I, don't know what, I don't know why that should... Um, but meanwhile, because James is not here, I will not attempt a segue. I will just tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Headspace. Has your mind been sprinting for years on end, leaving trails of stress, anxiety, fatigue that are eroding your mental health? And if it hasn't, you are not paying attention. If you're nodding along, yes, then it's time to adopt small daily practices that will have a huge impact on your long-term happiness and well-being. It's easy to learn with Headspace. Look, we all say fine when we don't mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion, though, is it? How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you've really felt is anger, sadness, or nerves? Plenty. Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved that in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. So whether you want to relieve stress or anxiety, sleep better or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. Um, I actually do this. I, I, my, I use it all the time. I have it on my phone. It's fantastic. Do you really? Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different things. You don't have to. It doesn't. It's not 30 minutes. It can be 11 minutes. It's, it really does... If you if you have a day where you're doing five or six different things and, and they take different parts of your brain, it's nice to take a break and make a little delineation between them. Um, so, however you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash ricochet. That's headspace, all one word, dot com slash ricochet. Get one month free of their, their entire library. That's the, this is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash ricochet today. Headspace.com slash ricochet. We thank Headspace for sponsoring the Ricochet Podcast. Uh, and now coming up, we have a great guest. Elbridge Col Colby is a co-founder of the Marathon Initiative, which he'll explain, and author of 2021's The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict. From 2018 to 2019, Colby was the director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security, where he led the center's work on defense issues. For essential updates on the 
uh, precarious and dangerous and um, tumultuous world we live in. You can follow him on Twitter at Elbridge Colby. It will also put that in the show notes. Elbridge Colby. Now here to from that from this point on, Bridge. Let's just start with what caught my attention, which is your piece in the Wall Street Journal before the invasion. We note that it was before the invasion. I also note, I suppose I'd better, in fairness to you, note that the headline was not yours, uh, uh, right? But the headline was, Ukraine is a distraction from Taiwan. And your argument, which you argue in the book you have out now, I'm quoting your piece in the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. can no longer afford to spread its military across the world. And you just put it very bluntly, honestly, when it comes to it, Taiwan matters more than Ukraine. That all sounds, now that we have this horrible disaster taking place, it sounds colder than you. I have the feeling you must have meant it to. And so I want, I'd like you to explain that. And also it took, what, uh, 72 hours for John Bolton to put a piece in the Wall Street Journal smacking you around. John Bolton said, Beijing is not a regional threat. Treating the rest of the world as a third-tier priority, a distraction. If the U.S. does that, it plays directly into China's hands. Foreign policy is not a zero-sum game. Weakness in Afghanistan emboldens Xi Jinping. Okay, we have a, a huge event taking place in Ukraine, which is now turning into a humanitarian crisis. Explain how your thinking fits in, into the, what we're facing today. Sure, and thanks, and great to be on with you, Peter. Peter and Rob, a, a pleasure uh, to, to to meet and to be on your important show. Um, I mean, fundamentally, my my thinking hasn't changed because my thinking wasn't dependent on the idea that that Russia was going to behave in a sort of a civilized way. So I actually laid out how we should address uh, the Ukraine, the abomination, the abominable aggression against Ukraine, in a piece in Time Magazine uh, that came out about four or five days ago that I'd, I'd commend to your attention because I think it, it gives a, you know, after the point. And I will, I will confess to you, Peter, uh, it does sound cold, but my view is that we need a lot more cold water on our thinking. Um, I'll, I'll get to Mr. Bolton in a few minutes, but it's thinking like that and sort of um, that has led us to this sorry place that we didn't need to be. And it was the kind of, if, if we had followed the sort of thinking that I'm advocating, we actually wouldn't be in this place. And that is because of, uh, in, including because of power. So the fundamental the fundamentals of the international situation have not changed. Russia was a threat before. It is now obviously a threat. Although some of the same people who are arguing uh, that Russia is, is the Russian military is, uh, is performing so poorly are the same people who are calling for a doubling down in Europe. But we can get into that if you want. But the fundamentals, you know, Asia is 50% growing of global GDP. China is 20% uh, and growing as a relative fraction. Europe is 20 percent going down to 10 percent over the next 20 years according to the eu and russia is you know the i think the 11th or 12th largest economy in the world uh with a significant military uh but one that is limited in its capacity it's one tenth of gdp of the size of china and the fundamental fact and i mean my, my basic view on, on ambassador bolton's uh uh subtweeting op-ed is that now i really know i'm right because if john bolton opposes me i'm sure i'm i'm correct because I actually think he's exceeded even maybe Joe Biden in being wrong. And in fact, if we had followed Ambassador Bolton's advice, we would be in a worse situation. So the, the, the thing that, that in Ambassador Bolton's op-ed that is most revealing 
is that he said our power is not zero sum. And I don't yes. know how a hawk or, or a realistic person who grapples with military power, certainly President Reagan, I don't think you would know him better than I, but that was not the that was not the idea of the Reagan administration is that we needed to rejuvenate and we need to focus our military power and we need to be very careful in its, in its, in its application. And that to me is like the conservative mindset, which is we'd live in reality. I mean, missiles can't be used in more than once. Airplanes can only, we, they live in space and time. Frankly, I mean, despite Ambassador Bolton being such a fan of employing military power, unlike myself, I have not support the only war I've supported in my adult lifetime was the original mission against Afghanistan. Ambassador Bolton support supply uh, supported them all and more that we didn't even do. But those there is scarcity. So if you talk to a military audience, for those of us who served in the Pentagon, that is the world in which they live. So the notion that that is a self-discrediting point that he made there. Now, obviously, in elements like soft power. And- so you just said something really interesting. Yeah. So. The military mindset is one of constant calculation and recalculation. And part of it is, if they do this, we do this, then what happens next? And part of it is constantly sorting through priorities, priorities and sequences. Is that correct? So you're always up against your, your, so to speak, your budget constraint. You only have so many true is that no i would i would say this peter i think you're getting at it but but two things i would say the military mindset is one that deals in reality and the way what how do we have enough to do what we're supposed to do and if we don't how do we rack and stack and as the military says take risk and then i think the conservative mindset so i'm a conservative realist the conservative mindset is we live in the real world and power is a reality and at the ultimate, you know, if you if you don't have good police force you can't rely on people's good nature etc that we have to account for power. And if I think of the Reagan administration, what they were saying about Carter was he didn't have a serious way of dealing in Europe. And then you look back at the Nixon and Ford administration after Vietnam, we don't have a good strategy in Europe. And, and President Reagan was prepared to say, I'm going to, you know, obviously before the, 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 the relaxation of tensions at the end, but was I'm prepared to, fi- to fight a war with the Soviets in order, and we have to be clear and we have to be strong enough. And so it's not that, you know, my view on the, on the defense budget issue is I think it's lame for defense experts to start out by calling for more spending. It's, you know, it's our job to say, here's the priorities, here's what we can do, and it's up to the American people to decide. And what I did in my book, Peter, as you, as you referred to, is to say, here are the priorities. And the most important thing for the American people's interest is to deny China regional hegemony, because that's 50% of global GDP, and they can do it. Bridge, let me ask one more, one more question. I can see what Rob's face Rob wants to get in, but I'm going to ask one more question, if I may. So... What about the argument? I talked yesterday to Stephen Kotkin, and and Stephen said, well, now, it's important for us to, to get Ukraine right, because the Chinese are watching. So, yeah. and, uh, all right, so that's okay. the simple, yeah. go ahead. Two, two, uh, two things. First, to directly address your question. One is, uh, the, the Chinese are watching, but again, Peter, let's go back to what the Chinese are fundamentally going to assess, which is our ability to defend. It's not like this very linear kind of the Americans did this over here and they don't do that over there. If we're remembering that we live in the world of space and time and physics, there are constraints on our power. So if we get tied down in Europe too much, we will have right. fewer things and ability to fight. I think, I think you're a student of history. Winston Churchill apparently said we can win one war or fight two, right? And this is why we had a Europe strategy. And they pulled air power 
out of the Asian theater to Britain because that was the decisive theater. So this is strategic thinking. And I, it sounds corny and trite, but we need strategic thinking. And Bolton is the antithesis of strategic thinking because he's getting us in fights everywhere and trying to impose his will, but we don't have the power base. And I'm not saying that in some self-lacerating way in the way that some conservatives are now. No, this is like what we have, given that the Chinese are the largest economy to emerge in the international system since the 19th century. The, the second point I'd like to say here is, I'm not saying we abandon Europe, so the Boltons of the world are distorting my argument, but I'm saying that we should at least do four things. One, arm the Ukrainians to the hilt. I was on TV yesterday. They did it to us, and the Soviets did it to us in Vietnam and Korea. We can do the same to them. We gotta take their nuclear arsenal seriously, but we also need to stick to our guns. Second, there's a fundamental disapproval of the Bolton view of the world that's happening right now, which is that our allies are feckless and they'll never step up. They are stepping up. Doesn't mean we completely skedaddle from Europe tomorrow. But the Hey, Bridge, did that surprise you? Uh, I mean, Olaf Scholz calling the Bundestag into emergency. Me. I mean, that was an astonishing moment. thing. Was That's historic. Right. I mean, that is historic. And I've been haranguing the Germans. I wrote an op-ed in the German press the week of the Munich Security Conference, taking them to task, telling them they were, they were following a Germany first uh, 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 policy. So I have to give them credit. They, they finally did. And the Poles are at 3%, Peter. The Romanians at 2.5%. So there's a capacity. And by the way, European NATO is much larger than Russia. Third thing, sanctions, of course, and we got to think about exactly what that is. Fourth, energy independence, reduce Russian reliance. That, that's a strategy. So we have, and then we can prioritize the Pacific. Um, hey, Bridge, this is Rob. Thanks for joining us. But th that is what we're doing. I mean, I think when you talked about the living in space and time and physics, mostly what we're doing is not atoms. It's bits that we're uh, fighting the Russians with because there are two pressure points, really only two, right? Natural gas and oil. Um, our interaction with Russia, Russia's interaction with the world is pretty, pretty limited to two basic channels. China's very different. There, <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, seven days ago, we didn't know what these, what these sanctions would look like. They look pretty good. Seven days into a, a Chinese takeover of Taiwan, what on earth, the, the, the connections between the West and China, between the United States and China, between Long Beach, California, and Seattle and Oakland and China are so complicated that the idea of financial sanctions against China as a weapon against China seems to me to be fantastical. So I guess what I'm saying is that if, if as, as, as you predict, is coming to pass, is that I, I think the one thing we can probably say will be true a year from now is that the Europe, our, our allies in Europe will have taken a greater interest and a greater financial stake in their own defense. What does that leave America to do to China? How on earth could we dissuade China? Um, Military force. Sorry, that, I totally agree with you. Economic sanctions don't work very well in general compared to the amount of time we spend talking about them. I mean, we talk about sanctions all the time, and they've not right. been very successful against Cuba, North Korea, North Vietnam, right. Iran, et cetera. They seem pretty. Let alone they, they seem the like they seem like they'll work against Russia right now, right? Don't, don't well, think? yes, they're working, but Saudi is fighting. This yeah. is the key thing, and the sanctions didn't work. They didn't deter, right? It's not the sanctions that are the the, the critical thing here. They are important as a secondary mechanism, as a punishment, and as a penalty. Exactly. But the main thing that's happening is the Ukrainians are standing up and fighting, right. and we should arm them. And that's the thing is like, we don't have to be doing the fighting all the time, contra John Bolton. Right. We can have, well, he's not doing the fighting, but others doing the fighting for him. They they, they can, others can do the fighting. And that's the point. Is anybody, right? but I, can, the problem is in Asia, it, can I yeah, just make sure, the yeah, point? It's critical. It's different in Asia because the power balance, and that's economic, that's military power, but it's economic power fundamentally, is 
China's 50% of Asian GDP, and the, the allies are, that we have are diff, disaggregated, yeah. they're, they're distinct from each other, so they can pick us off. And our sanctions, A, forget it, a lot of these sanctions countries aren't going to do. And also, that's the other thing about scarcity that people are missing the point on. Unfortunately, a lot of these sanctions probably can't be, can't be shot more than once. I was at a lunch with a, a German official a couple of days ago. And the guy's talking about how they're going to reduce their reliance on Germ- uh, on Russian gas and so forth. And he's like, this is going to hit us, but we're going to do it. That draws against their willingness to do that against China. Right. So some of these, you know, the Japanese. Right. And then that's, that's why I say, like, we shouldn't be giving the Japanese, the Indians too hard, too hard of a time because we're going to need their sanctions on China in the event of a Taiwan fight, even though that's not going to be enough. We're going to have to have a military denial strategy. And that's the, okay, so, the military denial strategy is why we need to prioritize. So, so let me let me I mean, understand because I'm, I, I yeah. suffer from a terrible lack of imagination. I can only think about things in real. Um, the only actual I mean, maybe there are more. I, I maybe I'm just blocking blotting them out. The only actual American actions that are being advocated sort of is a the enforcement of a no-fly zone, which would be uh, in Ukraine, I'm talking about, which would, uh, in my opinion, would be insane. Um, I agree. It's uh, insane. It's, it's crazy, right? Um, yeah. The deployment of U.S. troops seems silly. The uh, encouragement yeah. of the of the Germans to, to meet their obligations and spend 2% seems brilliant. seems like a positive right. outcome. Are you suggesting that, um, I mean, you started by saying we didn't need to be here. So one of the ways I'm going to ask you this hypothetically, one of the ways that we could avoid being here now, could it have been had a, a more robust, enthusiastic, generous arming of the Ukrainians over the past decade, decade and a half? I mean, we took we we traded. We talked about this before you got here. 1994, we basically said, well, you give us your nukes and we'll give you your country. And they interpreted this as a. As a quasi, not quite guarantee, but a quasi guarantee that they had a country, that they had a. That's how they. I mean, we didn't interpret it that way, but that's how they took it. Um, and it's a pretty good deal for us, right? Because we got we removed one potentially crackpot, unstable um, country with nukes, and we just concentrated all the the danger in China and U.S. and, the, and Russia. Um, would you recommend, assuming that's one way we could have avoided being here right now, is by the, you know two x, three x, ten x, fifteen x javelin missiles in in Ukraine? Um, is that what we should be doing with Taiwan? It's not. Uh, it's not enough again for Taiwan, and this is this is a, a, a critical thing. Is people are taking it's they're too analogizing it, and you got you got to look at the factors. Um, so uh, you know, look, China is much more powerful relative to Taiwan than Russia is to Ukraine. Right. The size difference is tremendous. Obviously, 1.4 billion people against 23 million people. If the Taiwanese are alone, they're smoked. It's over. And I mean, look, the Russians may win this war yet. I don't know. Um, I think some people may be spiking the football a little, a little early on this. But I, I think we absolutely not only do we need to be arming the Taiwanese, we need to be like putting intense pressure on them to arm. But even then, we're still going to have to fight if Taiwan is going to be uh, uh, defensible. And my point is that the more we focus, the lower the cost will be, right? And that'll make it more likely we fight and it'll be more likely that we deter the Chinese. It's the same logic of the, in sense, I think, of the buildup of the 1980s, right. which is the stronger you are and they see you have a credible way of fighting that's not stupid, the more likely they'll be, to, they'll be, to so, be deterred and go along So how do we practically, how do we um, increase the price 
of a Taiwan adventure, if the Chinese are kind of window shopping right now, how do we put a price tag in the window that's high enough that they say, you know what, we would rather just sponsor a newspaper and a a political party and uh, Hong Kong this 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 little island. Which is not going to work. But well, well, you know, it's, I have to vote for okay, you. Right. it's called the strategy of denial. All right, all right. It's the strategy of denial, which is get the military peace right against. It's like cops in a neighborhood. You know, people say, oh, the military peace is only one piece. It's an economic and informational. Sorry, that is false. If the military peace is employed, nothing else matters because, as Chairman Mao said, power comes out of the barrel of a gun. So, like the cops, like after Giuliani or Bloomberg, sure, people didn't think about the cops, but everybody was thinking about the cops in New York in 1993, right? I mean, when Dinkins was mayor. So it's like, that's the, that's the analogy. And again, I think this is like basic conservative kind of mindset, which is like, got to get this right. And so the way to do it is a denial strategy, which is to say, if you try to do this, you will fail and that will be bad for you. And then, you know, that's it, right? Or not, that's it. But there are other consequences. And that's about shooting. I mean, I go into this in the book. It's about sinking the fleet and shooting the uh, shooting down the aircraft and going after the troops that land. And sorry to keep going after Bolton, but the Bolton is like assuming that we're there and we're not because he's not living in the real world where you actually listen to the military analysis. What the military officials are telling us is that we're not there. So it's like people are like, oh, yeah. You know, one of his colleagues was saying that the Asia pivot of 2014 already happened. And that's no, it didn't. It didn't happen. So that's the that's the world we're in. Could I ask the threshold question? Why does Taiwan matter to us? We just lost Hong Kong. I mean, it's horrifying. My friend Jimmy Lai is in prison. This is horrible. But as a matter as as a matter of American interests, eh? So what? Ukraine, honestly. The world lived with Ukraine as a Russian satrapy during the czars. It was a, an oblast of the Soviet Union. So what if Russia takes it? I mean, it's horrible, but direct immediate American interest, hard. So, so, so the Chinese take Taiwan. It takes two years to rebuild the chip plants in South Korea. We, yeah, so what? It's 23 million people. It's an island. We can live without it. Sure. And I look at this from a realist perspective. I think there are arguments about chips and democracy. There are basically three reasons, and the third one is kind of derivative. And it all gets back to what's our core interest, which is denying China hegemony over the world's largest uh, economic area. And the only way we can do that is an anti-hegemonic coalition. It's basic balancing theory, and it's consistent with the American idea. Nobody should have too much power, separation of powers, and coalitions, right? The coalition is made up of countries that don't want to live under China's boot, but everybody in Asia... Of course, doesn't want to live under Chinese boot, but also doesn't want to get turned into rubble, right? They don't want to be made an example. Correct. Okay. So everybody's thinking it's what the academics call the balancing versus bandwagon. It's just human nature. Do I make a deal or can I stand up strong? And this is what we wrestled with with West Germany during the Cold War, as you know. So two two basic reasons. One is Taiwan is really important, whether we like it or not, for what I call the differentiated credibility of the United States. So I am not a neocon in the sense that all credibility is, oh, we fail in Afghanistan or Ukraine, Taiwan. No, no, no. Where credibility matters is contextually. If you're in Tokyo, let alone Manila, Hanoi, even Canberra, Seoul, you're thinking, I'm putting myself on the line here. Are these Americans going to be there, even though it's really costly and risky? And the only thing you can use to tell is how we behave in very like circumstances. What the uh, It's kind of like a fact pattern or sort of what from the law, right? And Taiwan, we are tied to, whether we like it or not. I mean, TRA, 
the six assurances, sorry, the Taiwan Relations Act, six assurances, a long pattern of behavior. And in fact, the Biden administration is up the rhetoric on this. So one, if, if we lose Taiwan, you can bet that countries like the Philippines, the South Korea are going to have fundamental issues, right? And even Japan, and they've made it clear. So that's one reason. Two is the military significance of the island of Taiwan, which is the middle of the first island chain. And again, we got to think in space and time, Peter. That's the Chinese military is already building a power projection. Bridge, take just a moment to explain these two island chains. Sure. They come up again and again. It's a relatively simple couple of. Go ahead sure, and explain no, that. We think of the Pacific as this large area, but it's actually most of it's uninhabited. And where it's kind of concentrated is along in the Western Pacific. And there's two basic you can think of as chains of islands. The first chain is the island, the, the islands of the Japanese archipelago. Taiwan down to the Philippines. And that forms one chain. And then the second chain, or a friend of mine calls it the cloud, who did excellent illustrations, Andy, Andrew Rhodes in the book, is sort of a cloud of islands. And that's more of the Pacific Islands that we think of from World War, World War II. Um, the first island chain is where the, the maritime periphery of Asia is where the wealth is concentrated. So it's both from a geopolitical sense, it's where, you know, what if we get like Yap and Truck and China gets Japan and Taiwan, that's not, that doesn't work. Right. We have to work with the coalition. The coalition's got to be built of those countries in the Western Pacific. And that is why after the war, after the Second World War, we stuck in the first island chain, because that's the critical. And that also keeps us it's an important point as it we're a democracy. We're good at high value add capital intensive military affairs. We're not a, the, we're not human wave attack. That's for China and, and Russia, the big Eurasian land powers. So we want to be at the front of the island. This gets to my third point, which is our alternatives are worse. So if we if we cut Taiwan off or we let them go, if we're going to keep this hegemon this anti-hegemonic coalition going, we're going to have to compensate because the, everyone's going to be like, well, you lost 23 million people, semiconductors, their military. And why do I trust you? Then we might have to start making a deal with like Vietnam or Thailand, which A, don't really want to, and B, then we're in a land war in Asia. We wanted, we wanted if, if we have to, God forbid, get in the fight, we want it to be at sea. Okay, I've got one more question, and then I let I, I give it back to Rob. I can tell, I'm getting the, you don't know him well enough, uh, uh, Bridge, but I'm getting, I'm beginning to get the evil eye from Rob. So, here, here's another little country. Things are changing now, but for decades it was surrounded by bad guys who wished it ill. And that's Israel. And Israel has universal conscription, and it is dotted with military installations. It has a first-class air force, which penetrates other people's airspace every so often, just to show that it can do so. In other words, Israel, from the very get-go, has been extremely serious about cold, hard military analysis and has the national morale and has astonishingly, really, sustained that national morale since 1948. The national morale to support the military seriousness. Taiwan isn't like that. So, I mean, ultimately, we can do everything that you say we ought to do in your book, Strategy of Denial, 
But where are the Taiwanese on this? They're divided, not unified. Isn't that right? Well, they're worse. They're delinquent. I mean, it's totally unacceptable. And I, I'm actually very harsh with them rhetorically when I speak to them. I mean, I actually, because I don't know why Americans are treating them nicely when they're not doing things because it's American lives that are at stake. So we should be pressuring them. But the point I would make to you, Peter, is what I'm saying is that it's not, we're not defending Taiwan for their sake. We're ta- defending Taiwan for our sake. But you know, I mean, I think basically where we are, speaking of the Cold War, is Taiwan, we're going to defend Taiwan whether they want it or not. Just like we were going to defend West Germany whether they want it or not. They can be a battlefield or they can be de- better defended, like Britain was, say, in 1940. And that's up to them. And they should get their, their tails in gear. I mean, but I also, if I were a Taiwanese, I'd be like, get more of this Bridge Colby guy. He's going to defend us. Like, because it's <laughs> these loser generals. They literally are loser generals. They were the descendants of the Guomindang who, like, lost the communists, which is a catastrophe. And many of them have mainland sympathies anyway, probably. I don't know. But their you know, reasonable minds have suggested it. But we're not doing it as a favor for them. So what that means is we're going to do it anyway, but we should put as much pressure on them as possible so that they do their part. And I, 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 and I have to say, this is, this is what I think our policy should be focused on. After the Germans did that thing, same with Japan. I wrote an op-ed in the Japanese press. You should double your defense budget right now or triple it. You know, so Because the same logic applies to Japan. But Japan's our most important ally in the world. It's 100 20 million people, second or third largest economy. So this is the, that's like a problem, but that's not a reason to, to cut them off because we're not doing it for them. We're doing it because it's an important piece of geography and an economy. Got it. Hey, so Bridge, I, I, I'm kind of with you on some of it and I'm kind of not with you on some of it. Okay. Here's where I'm with you. I think you're absolutely right about Europe. I think you're um, not sure. I 100% believe that we have a choice over where we pay attention. I think we pay attention you know, a third of it is what fire is burning at the present time. But I think you're correct that we probably need to sort of shift or outshift from our late 20th century obsession with um, Western European security and recognize that those are big economies and big countries and they need to defend themselves. Um, but I'm not sure I get the, uh, a lo- I'm not sure I get the domino effect that you're trying to posit with a loss of Taiwan. I don't see the Chinese wanting to expand past their Mandarin-speaking brothers, who are, I think, correctly of two minds about this. If anything is going to dissuade them to rejoin the mainland or to happily rejoin the mainland, it's going to be what's happening in Hong Kong. But that's a PR problem. The Chinese themselves, the country, the the Beijing, the center, is um, mostly distracted, right? Not distracted, but mostly obsessed with its internal unification. The separative movements to the West, to the South, those are Southeast Asians. There's a a strong racial animus between Southeast Asians and the Han Chinese. And the Chinese to the North in Dongbei, who are a Koryo people, who are naturally, if not, or maybe unnaturally, but they are, uh, they are continually talking about reunifying with their choreo um, relatives to the East. Um, I get it. I, I, I certainly think that Japan should be paying for its own defense. It's time now, but I'm not sure I see that the, that going to war, this is all hypothetical, right? But going to war to protect Taiwan is a war that we need to fight. I don't think that those are American lives that will be saved or lost. If the, if the Chinese take over Taiwan tomorrow, I think that um, I think everything's going to be just fine. Ah. Bridge, before you answer, I just want you to know that if you can handle Rob Long, Xi oh, Jinping yeah, yeah, will she, be no problem. I, I don't mean everything's going to be no fine, problem. meaning it's going to be fine and dandy for the, for, the, for, the, for the people in Taiwan, but I, I don't know. I mean, 
Nobody knows. Here, here, I don't know what the Chinese future behavior is. I'm, you know, like I'm people who say they do. I don't. I mean, I'm not but like I just, who could know. But I, you know, look, I'm a conservative realist. So I say at the end of the day, intentions change. But what matters is power and capability. So power, we know they would be the strongest country in the world at that point. Uh, or they're already potentially going to be the strongest economy in the world, and they have immense geographic advantages. More to the point, here's by far the most significant piece of evidence. They are building a military that is not what you're what you're saying. They could have built a military that is designed specifically to unify with Taiwan. In fact, they, they were. That was like in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. People could make that argument. That's not what they're doing. They're building a military for what's called power projection, aircraft carriers, space, att- nuclear attack submarines to go distance, Marine Corps, air assault forces. So all of those forces are for distance. And by the way, they're building bases, like apparently they're looking at a base on the Atlantic coast of Africa. So they're so, doing it for something, you're saying? Well, so, so here's the point. They will have the power. And in fact, I think realistically, we pretty clearly can tell that they have much broader ambitions. And then here's the thing about intentions. First of all, I think Xi Jinping is basically saying that they have much broader ambitions. I think they're probably their only annexation, desired annexation is Taiwan. But as we've demonstrated, like in Iraq, you invade countries to coerce them. That's like kind of maybe what Putin is doing. Who knows what his goals are, but it might be a puppet government or something. I don't know. But but the point is, the the, the fact, and, and by the way, remember the military forces take a long time to build. They take a lot of planning. They're expensive. You have to be very deliberate about it. So that tells you a lot. And intention. So you might be right right now that Xi Jinping would think, well, I don't think you are, but, but you <laughs> might be right. But Xi Jinping might change his mind. Right. Hitler became more aggressive after 1939 or a new group leadership comes in. And my favorite example of that is Madeleine Albright. Right. I mean, the Colin Powell and the Bush 41 crowd, the Powell doctrine, Weinberg doctrine, all that sort of stuff, built this incredible Reagan era military. And then we we're going to be very judicious about how, how we used it. And then the Soviet Union collapsed and Bill Clinton came in and Madeleine Albright said to Colin Powell, what's with the point of this beautiful military if we can't use it? Right. right. So that's like what intentions change. And so. I think we would be very ill-advised to try because you're essentially making. Yeah, I mean, the, the voters in the China may, may may vote in a new uh, general secretary. Well, I, I mean, I don't really have a vote. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that. I mean, right, you're, right. you're right. I mean, but yeah, and then the, and then I would just say on the on the domino theory thing. I don't. I mean, I I clearly differentiate mine from the domino theory, which the domino theory is kind of the neoconservative view, which is everything's connected, and if you lose in, you know, Kyrgyzstan, you're going to lose in Western Europe or whatever. No, it's very contextual. But I, I, the, the counterpoint is the sort of isolationist academic argument, which is that credibility doesn't matter. And it's like, well, have you, has anyone applied for a mortgage? I mean, you right. get a credit report, right? Like, obviously, credibility matters in human relationships. Okay, so um, relationships. I know you got to run. So, so let me and ask, the so, Japanese have said there that this is critical for them. So, so what, what should we be? I mean, what, what would be a sign of the next, I don't know, six months that things are getting better for us? Or what is a sign that things are going to get worse for us? What, what, uh, what are, what are the, what's the next canary in the coal mine? Sorry, you're talking particularly about China, Taiwan, or are you talking about uh, I'm sort of talking about American national security in general. Well, I think the most important thing that could happen right now, given that the Germans have done something, is the Japanese increased defense spending and the Taiwanese increased defense spending materially and, and spend uh, heavily. And I mean, look, I, I think if we could focus our defense more, but those are kind of long-term polls. I think the thing on the Chinese is they're probably unlikely, because of the value of, of surprise, and especially in an amphibious invasion, they're probably likely to try to avoid giving us signals. I think one of the things they're doing yeah. with these provocations in their air defense identification zone is to dull us, like the uh, Arabs did in 1973. So we're, we, you know, 
they're not stupid right. and it's stupid to give us a lot of warning. So I'm not sure we're going to get much. Hmm. Could you cheer us up? Please? Yeah, say something reassuring. Yeah, I, I, I can cheer you up. This is a feasible problem that we can solve. This problem, we're abundantly capable of it. We're just not Hold on. doing it. This is really important. Yeah. Here's what's in the back of my mind, and if it's in the back of my, and I mean the back of my mind, this is the reptile brain, and if it's in my reptile brain, it's probably I know. You went. You and Rob went to Yale, so you don't have reptile brains. They no, get no, removed no. or something, Me. but. Here's what all, it is. All brain for us. All brain for you guys. So here's what it is. Fear. It is fear. We have 330 million people and a polarized electorate. 50-50. Almost in the Senate, it is literally 50-50. 50-50 with very different ideas about what this country should be like, let alone what our foreign policy should be like, let alone what our military budget should be, let alone whether the military should be used first for fighting and threatening to fight or first for helping to remold the country in as a laboratory for various social experiments. Social, yes, yeah, social experiments. China, 1.4 billion a dictator who doesn't have to get things through Congress and an economy that continues to grow and grow and grow. And yes, I know the GDP per capita is still very far below ours, but they're already spending as best I can tell. I don't know how reliable the figures are. And I have to, I'm sure you go into this in strategy of denial, but as best I can tell, they're already spending 60, 70% as much on defense as we are. This is scary. So, can we really? You're talking about realism, realism, realism. You know what it looks like to me? It looks like to me that maybe the realistic view is that we're England and the game at the end, at the middle of the 20th century, and the game for the United States of America may be just about up. Now, no politician will say that because it will not win votes, but a lot of people in one way or another, fear that it's true. And how do you address that fear, which we all know is present? Well, look, I, I think there's terrible things going on in the country, and I, I'm a conservative, so I probably should share with, with both of you profound concerns. But I will say, I actually think that the concerns about our domestic discord are exaggerated because actually one of the areas of continuity across the Trump and Biden administration was China, and in fact, the defense strategy, as far as I can tell, at least what was supposed to be released was something like a copy of, of what we did in, in four years ago. So or building on it. So actually, and, and the opposition party is in favor of a harder line on China. So like, where's the evidence that we can't get our act together? I just don't see it. And, and I, I, like, I hate so much of what's going on in our country, but I, like, that's me as a private citizen American, not me as a st strategist. <laughs> but I, I think, uh, you know, fear is the passion to be reckoned upon, as Hobbes said, and that's worked with the Germans and the Poles and the Romanians. Uh, and uh, hopefully it'll work with the, with the Taiwanese and the, and, the, and the Japanese. But I think the, the point that I would emphasize here, Peter, is this is a solvable problem if we have a denial strategy, because I'm not talking about, like, I'm not talking about SDI. I'm not saying we've got to figure out a way to do something that is going to break cost curves in physics and all that. No, what I'm saying is we need to use established principles of military force and weapons in a reasonable capacity and in a posture that people know how to do to kill the enemy in sufficient number to degrade, right? I mean, remember what I'm talking about militarily is like, you know, 
Hitler had Hitler controlled the European continent, he couldn't invade Britain. Napoleon controlled the European continent, he couldn't invade Britain. And yes, technology has changed, but, but sorry, John Bolton, you still got to move people through space and time and exercise decisive force. And if we can deny China that, well, if we deny it to Taiwan, we deny it to Japan or basically South Korea, Australia. They can't project power, get back to that first island chain. They can't get out of the box. And then we can also work with countries like India, divide their attention. This is another Reagan era thing. You know, try to uh, intensify their own problems internally and externally. Why are we giving them a free ride on like Tibet or something like that, which is morally, you know, sort of supportable anyway. So I think this, we, we can do this. We just need to grapple with reality and then de develop and, well, I would say more implement the strategy right. I'm advocating Good. for, and, and it'll succeed. Do you think it's going to be easier um, to make that argument to Japan Taiwan by showing them a photograph of President Xi and Vladimir Putin shaking hands on February 4th? We'll see. I, I, I haven't... Um, I, I, Japan is now isolated among the major U.S. allies in its, in its low level of spending. Before mm -hmm. they could point to the Germans, now they truly are isolated. <laughs> right. So yeah. um, uh -oh. I'm hoping. Yeah. And, and, and Taiwan, too. And Taiwan has been improving more. They have yeah. been. There's a lot of in, internal issues there. But. All right. So that's, what, that's one of the green shoots we'll look for. The book is called The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. The author, Elbridge Colby. Bridge, thank you. This is fantastic. Please come Please come yeah. back um, when, uh, when, uh, when China invades Taiwan. You got me riled up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should have you guys both on. Let's just back off. The octagon. That's right. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much. <laughs> See Bridge, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peter, another great, important topic of world interest. When it comes to men's underwear, Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear is the full package deal. <laughs> when you're wearing Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, you are that much more comfortable so you could do everything better like defend Taiwan. With dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're never going back. Innovations like air mesh interior hammock, moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, plus the legs never ride up. And Tommy John underwear comes with the ro non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. I'm wearing them right now. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Fanatics are called Tommy John's hammock pouch, one of life's greatest inventions. I believe that was you, Peter. With over 17 million pairs sold, men across America love their Tommy John underwear. Shipping returns free always because every pair is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. Get 20% off your first order right now at tommyjohn.com slash ricochet. Go to tommyjohn, all one word, dot com slash ricochet today. 20% off tommyjohn.com slash ricochet. See site for details. We thank Tommy John for sponsoring the Ricochet podcast. We do indeed. Our next guest is Rich Goldberg. He's a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. That seems to be the theme today. He's worked on a wide range of issues relating to U.S. foreign assistance, including foreign military financing, international security assistance, and economic support funds. And he is the host of a new podcast on the Ricochet Network. Okay, so write this down. This is another podcast you got to listen to. It's called Kryptonite, where he guides listeners through the intimidating world of cryptocurrency. You are going to explain what the blockchain means. If you've ever wanted to know, and I guess you should know, right? You should want to know um, what it all means. He's here to tell you. Uh, so so, so t tell me, <clears throat> we'll just start with cryptocurrency, right? How much do you own? Are, are you a, are you a, do you hold, do you hold a, a basket of cryptocurrencies? I have a weighty basket. Okay. It's, it's gone down a little bit. I was at $70 uh, earlier in the year. 70 I think okay. I'm, I, All right. 
Yeah. Well, you know, worth of Bitcoin. And, uh, and, and I went down to, to 50 in my little Robinhood wallet. Uh, but the truth is, is that I have coming into this low level of understanding on cryptocurrency and I feel like I'm a smart person. Right. And I, and I talk to people about cryptocurrency all the time. And I was in an elevator in Washington, DC and somebody, well, I was about to get out of the elevator and they said, are you invested in crypto? <laughs> and just out of the blue, just like making conversation with me. And I said, uh, no, it's like, Oh, I, I've, I'm just a regular person. So, yeah. I've made 25 grand the last year on, on just, does that worry crypto. you? That doesn't seem like it's Joe. Yeah. yeah Joe Kennedy right. would say, sell, sell, and sell. I, I, was the like, boy I, was like, for stock tips. I was like, what, what is going on here? And, and then you start seeing all these headlines of white house thinking of regulations, SEC considering regulations, blah, blah, blah. And all I remember is, you know, when I was on Capitol Hill years ago, and this was, I was in the Senate, but before when I was working in the house for, for a congressman at that point, we were looking at a, a virtual reality uh, program called second life. Do you remember this oh, thing? Sure. Second yeah, life. Yeah. That's where I had first heard of Bitcoin, right? You know, it was all these, interesting, I'll say interesting people who were on Second Life and they were using Bitcoin back then uh, to, to buy things in the virtual reality world. And then we started hearing, oh, well, child molesters and, and you know, rapists and all. And now Russian oligarchs, right? Market. I mean, half of them are Russian crypt- oligarchs. And I just say, you know what? This is such a huge space. You're seeing commercials advertising. People are getting lured in here. There are concerns on terror finance, on money laundering, on sanctions evasion. We need to be able to have one space for policymakers and investors and just regular people to understand what it's all about. So because Rich, I don't think people understand it. Rich, you're saying something really, really important, and I want to make it explicit if I understand it correctly. Kryptonite, your new podcast, is not, although they certainly welcome to listen to it, it's not for the 23-year-olds running around Silicon Valley, where I live, who already have their portfolios and have Bitcoin down exactly and understand the difference between Bitcoin. It's for people like Rob and me, who understand that we sort of ought to know something about this, but really can't understand it at all. If we subscribe to your podcast, you'll take us along and we won't feel intimidated. We'll feel educated. Right? Exactly. This is a okay. journey. I'm taking people on a journey. You can come in with very low knowledge, learn what cryptocurrency is all about, what the blockchain is all about, the pros and the cons, and then we're going to dive into every little crevice of this because people are making decisions. The federal government is making decisions. The Federal Reserve might make a decision. The Treasury Department, uh, Congress is weighing legislation. They've already started to legislate. And by the way, in the absence of any federal regulation or legislation, the states are acting and local governments are acting. Miami has its own coin. You know, what is it all about? And I think you're at home thinking, okay, well, I use Zelle or I use quick, you know, Chase Pay and and, and I have a bank account and I'm getting direct deposit. Like, I, I don't really need this or do I want it or is it going to help me? Or if you're a right. business, how is it helping you? And, and then you're seeing, wow, right. there's a war in Ukraine and there's crowdsourcing of crypto going to the Ukrainian people and oligarchs are shifting into crypto. And meanwhile, the, the market of crypto is up and down and people are making tons of money and then losing tons of money. And it's like, whoa, this is literally for me. I study policy. I've done national security policy. I've done domestic policy for a governor, for a congressman, for a senator at the White House National Security Council. And this is 
the true wild west of policy making. But is, is it also the wild west of a currency? I mean, <clears throat> part of the problem is that we, one of the arguments, so there's a privacy argument, blockchain, private, and then there's a um, yeah, sort of more libertarian monetary argument, right? This is a currency that is not subject to manipulation by you know, the Federal Reserve, essentially. Right. But the, but the U.S. dollar, which is obviously subject to that, is also expressed and paid for and has a, is tested in the marketplace a trillion times a day. Um, there are a trillion transactions every day basically propping up the value of the dollar more so more than the fed could even imagine there are not those transactions with bitcoin bitcoin still seems like a wobbly easily manipulated highly volatile um method of exchange an an incredibly illiquid method of exchange frankly which is one of the reasons why people now treat it like a stock or an asset they hold rather than a currency they express if that's the case Shouldn't you just tell me, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm, I love your podcast. I'm going to listen to your podcast, but shouldn't part of your podcast be, look, everyone just know about this, go to sleep, wake up when it's a, wake me up when it's a currency. Well, the, I, I think that's a good thing to, to say out loud. I, I do say it. I mean, episode two, we had Michael Green on as a former portfolio manager for Peter Thiel, big skeptic in, in crypto. And he has this great comment on the pod where he says, to be very clear, crypto is not a currency. It's a speculative asset. It's a security. And, and we should govern ourselves accordingly. Exactly what you're saying, Rob. But at the same time, you know, th- we have this bizarre tension going on where whether it's because it's just cool, it's a fad, or people see the technology behind it and what it could accomplish, right? The blockchain technology, we have this, this joke in our first episode where we really talked to a professor from Booth School, the University of Chicago Business School, Eric Budish, about explaining all the ins and outs of how crypto works. He says, you know, the people at cocktail parties used to, to, to say, I, I don't like Bitcoin, but I like the technology, right? And, and it's sort of like a lot of people's blockchain. feeling of the blockchain has right. all these different applications for, for B2B and for supply chains, et cetera. Um, but what about, you know, the actual Bitcoin itself, which has a ton of illicit uses and purposes, potentials, et cetera. And, and I don't want to really touch it, right? That use case is changing. People are now saying, oh, actually, I want to hold it. I want to use it. I want to, I want to be able to pay my taxes uh, in Bitcoin. I want to be able to make a contribution to a candidate in Bitcoin. Uh, and, and we might see cities and states start taking on Bitcoin as a real use uh, in daily life. And here's the interesting thing. And we talked about this more in, in one of our last episodes with Michael Greenwald, who's now just moved over to Amazon to start running their digital assets program there. Because as he said, cryptocurrency isn't a currency, it's data. It's data. Right. And I think about how much data, and by the way, where you store that data, you store it in the cloud, right? And so that's going to become issues. You talk about privacy right. issues, that's going to become a big issue. And, and we talked about the idea of uh, central bank digital currencies, right? So this incredible tension that is going on inside cryptocurrency right now, as we're learning about in our journey, is that you're right, we have this libertarian sort of starting point of decentralized finance, get the government out of it, get the middleman out of it, totally anonymous, I have full security. And then we have all these concerns popped up like, well, if you're going to have decentralized anonymity and all that, well, then terrorists are going to take advantage and money launderers and drug kingpins and the gangs and you you name it, Russian oligarchs. 
So we have to have regulation. We have to know who's doing transactions. We have to have compliance controls. Well, then the central banks start stepping in saying, well, we like the idea of making using the technology to, to make a digital dollar or a digital yuan or a digital which we kind you know, of already have, play, right? Which we kind of already have, but we can make it, you know, next generation, right? The 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 World War World Wide Web three, right? The you know, going to the next you know, uh, one of the uses, uh, examples that Michael Greenwald talked about was when we went through the stimulus payments for COVID, right? That should have been instantaneous. That should have been a very simple process. Right. If we had a central bank digital currency, he says, and people had wallets with the Federal Reserve, you could have gotten your, your payments very, very quickly, you know, immediately. Um, the way we do it is very old school antiquated. And there are other countries like China looking to advance, et cetera. But this is going to cause attention, right? Because it is literally the opposite of decentralized finance. It's centralized right. finance right? without anonymity. Right. I mean... All of that talk, though, I, I, I have to say, like, I, I sometimes I feel like uh, uh, cryptocurrencies are scratching an itch that I don't have. The idea that the, the, the Federal Reserve should be able to zap the money into my account. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah. I'd like them, somebody to carry my groceries up to my, my, my kitchen, my, my apartment. Not, not the hardest thing in the world for me to take a picture of it and deposit it that way, which is how I can do it on, at Bank of America. So it seems like I keep looking for the case where I'm going to use this stuff. And I have, by the way, full disclosure, I have a Coinbase wallet. I have now, I think, I think as of like yesterday, $2,100 worth of variety of, uh, of the cryptocurrencies. Um, I have a Coinbase wallet too, which I know will astound you, Rob. I do. I do. I I have not, I do you have younger children. They probably have forced you to do that. Um, so I guess what I'd say is like, okay, in this podcast, which um, I recommend we all subscribe to because it's fascinating, um, how dumb... Are the question? How dumb do you get? And I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my pre, my preview. Ultimate answer is you get really dumb because this is the, these are exactly the these are the conversations that I have with people about blockchain, and I I reach my limit of knowledge very quickly. The 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 higher and more theoretical they go, the more I think they are trying to swindle me. Yes. Yeah, so so episode one. Let me just say. Gets as dumb as you can, <laughs> good because I because I because I I, I, I I am coming at this I think in exactly the same cynical perspective you are, and I think where most people are, quite frankly, uh, of at least of a certain generation. Maybe you're maybe you're twenty something and on Robin Hood, and it's just like this is a wild ride. I love this. There goes my last paycheck. Bye bye. <laughs> uh, but 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 I think for most people, it's like I just don't get it. Why do I need this? Why do I want this? And how is this going to help or hurt me? And that's where I think this podcast is proving its worth because there are a lot of things happening in this yeah, space. Right. And there are a lot of, and, and the government's going to start regulating and people are going to start legislating. Right. And I don't think the people legislating or regulating know much about what they're legislating or regulating. They're taking their cues from the industry. Right. Right. The industry is by, there's a couple of news articles recently. We, you know, we go through headlines uh, every episode. There is so much money flooding into Washington right now on lobbyists yeah. from the cryptocurrency industry. The revolving door of people who were in government who are now being sucked up as consultants, right? There's nobody who's taking a cynical approach here and saying, okay, how are you going to actually regulate to stop tariff finance? How are you actually going to you know, prevent the gangs in Chicago or elsewhere from using cryptocurrency for, for nefarious purposes? When, when we're encouraging, we have 
states, by the way, legislation right now to encourage tax incentives for crypto mining, right? Illinois has a bill. Georgia has a bill. You're going to explain what that is, right? In this podcast at some point? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we go through mining. Episode one, I'm telling you, episode, I have people who are like very important people who have have called me saying, I am shipping episode one around (laughs) to everybody I know to explain cryptocurrency. Um, I was like, well, ship ship ship, every other episode. uh, Yeah, all of them. And I think everyone should subscribe. This is a great, uh, this is kind of one of the ways we want to continue to do with the Rick Shape uh, Audio Network is to have uh, a series like this that kind of explain and get behind and also make it uh, fun and interesting, which which could easily be something that is um, incredibly impenetrable and where I feel like I'm being cheated. Uh, Hey, Rich, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. The podcast is Kryptonite. Go find it on the Ricochet Audio Network. It's Kryptonite with a C. Yeah. I, Sorry, I know because that. I just this minute subscribed. And let's give the full title because he's been such a lovely guest just now. It's The full title is Kryptonite with Rich Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. That's a ring to it. Very that's good show business. Very good show business. Keep it short. Thanks. Rob, Peter, thank you so Thanks, much. Rich. Thank you, Rich. And again, in keeping with my tradition here, Peter, before we talk, if you are going on, speaking of security and crypto stuff, if you're going to go online without ExpressVPN, that would be like changing while leaving your window wide open. You might not have anything to hide, but why give random creeps a chance to invade your privacy? When you go online without a VPN, internet service providers, ISPs, can see every single website you visit. They can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies, tech giants, whomever, and they will then use your data to target you. But when you use ExpressVPN, your online activity is shielded from ISPs, your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server, and your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. I used it when I was in Europe. It really uh, it made me feel a lot better. It works with all the devices you surf the web on, your phone, laptop, even the router. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected and it couldn't be easier to use. You just fire up the app and click one button. I'm telling you, when you travel, it's essential, absolutely essential. I'm on Wi-Fi all the time, different people's Wi-Fi. Who, I don't even know sometimes. It is absolutely crucial to have ExpressVPN. You can secure your online activity too by visiting expressvpn.com slash ricochet today. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash ricochet. You get an extra three months for free expressvpn.com slash ricochet do it today i'm telling you it is a they are it's a great company it's a great product and i am very very happy with it we thank expressvpn for sponsoring the ricochet podcast as they've done um i think for a long time a couple years i mean they've been they've been really really very loyal very loyal advertisers so, Peter, I guess the next thing we got to do is we got to get um, Bridge and John Bolton together. On, on exactly. And then uh, where do we where do we get one of those old fashioned from the 1940s movies? One of those old fashioned bells that, that would start a boxing match. Yes, <laughs> ding, exactly. ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And in well, this you know, corner. it's interesting because I have to say that. Um, I mean, I, obviously, this is all comes out of a you know a bad place, but robust and uh, passionate and thoughtful and smart. Uh, arguments or debates about uh, the use of American power um, in a uh, in a in a tripolar world. Who's the China, um, us, and I guess Russia? I guess right. I'm just throwing right. them in. Right? Um, uh, is uh, is a good thing. 
I'm glad we're having those conversations. 20 years ago, it was all about the titanic existential struggle with the nightmare of Islamicism, Islamicists, I guess. Um, this feels like, um, I don't know, it feels a little bit more, uh, I can wrap my, arm, my head, my arms around it. I, I, I suspect it feels a little bit more like, oh, I, I this is chess. I understand. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. We should, may lose, but I understand yeah, it. Yeah. I, I my, my uh, to shift to crypto. I really, I, I truly, while we were talking, I got out my iPhone and subscribed to Kryptonite with Rich Goldberg. Here's the story that I heard, and I heard from somebody who was in the room, a young crypto entrepreneur, young guy who's founded a bank that accepts deposits only in crypto was in a meeting with a senior United States senator. And the senator said, are you crypto guys trying to destroy the US dollar? And the crypto entrepreneur replied, no, senator. The US government will destroy the, the dollar all by itself. Crypto will give the United States a lifeboat. There is that kind of reforming zeal out here. And I want to learn more about it. That's the podcast to do it. Hey, uh, we got to run. This podcast was brought to you by Headspace, Tommy John, and ExpressVPN. Please support them for supporting us. And join Ricochet today. Um, please take a minute and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That actually really does matter. Uh, and your reviews will allow new listeners, your reviews will allow new listeners to discover us, and that helps us keep this show going. Next week. Next week, and I have a request. James will also be gone next week, as I understand it. Opening chat next week. I want to hear how you use Headspace to compartmentalize your day. That actually sounds... I could use instructions there. It totally works. It totally works. All right. Next week, Rob. Next week. I'm a kid in a candy store. I'm a bull in a china shop. I'm a tired old metaphor for everything you can afford and everything you can afford to I'm a bottle of diet poison I'm a walking advertisement For everything I never meant And everything I never meant to
fun that the law allows All the fun but with half the meaning Come on over, I'll show you how If you lived here, you'd be home by now If you still lived here, you'd be home now with me Ricochet Join the conversation I can't hear 